Welcome to the ATP podcast, Justin Sherring, coach of Joe Salisbury and former coach of uh, Jack Draper, also very much involved, aren't you, in uh, Jack's career so far. When did you start working with Jack Draper? Yeah, I started working with Jack when he was sort of five or six years old. So I literally saw this, saw this sort of, you know, little killer come along and I go, wow, I, you know, I want some of this. And I was a you know, fairly sort of young coach. I'd done some work with, with Joe already and, and a guy called Chris Eaton. So I'd had a bit of practice, if you like. But when you get someone that comes onto your court and you go, yeah, this, this guy's different. He's got something here. Even at five or six years old, he was locked in, focused, and he was kind of um, identifying as a tennis player if you like, from that early age. You've obviously had a lot of experience with Joe Salisbury. Was it the same with him when he was younger? You saw something special about him. Yep, and I can still, I can still remember it. It's this ability to... I'm not even sure if it's a, an explicit skill. It's just their innate ability to concentrate because that's what they... It's their happy place. Their happy place, their happy space is on a tennis court hitting it back and forward and particularly I think the guys in, in that respect are a little bit lucky that they came to me when I wasn't you know I wasn't so much a theoretical coach I was like well, let's get on with it let's play first of 21 points out of the hand first ball cross let's get into it and it was right up their street mm. and then you end up sort of hitting hitting and competing and because you're a lot older and a lot stronger and still play at an okay level you know they're never going to win so you've almost got that perfect scenario where they're just you can just let them get close week on week but they're not quite and then I just sort of say well see you next week buddy or see you tomorrow <laughs> you know better luck next time is it important not to let them win at that age 100% because I used to wind both of them up a little bit and I think that's a bit of the coaching banter if you like is also saying hey mate I wonder how old you're going to be when you when you actually beat me at this game and it actually makes them think and they go I don't know, I was thinking maybe next week, and I go, next week, not on your Nelly, no way. Come back in six months, come back in a year. I mean, let's look at the things you've got to do better if you're even going to think about beating an old crafty devil like me. <laughs> Before, Joe, did you have people that you coached and almost failed with? And I know failed is quite a harsh word, but if you look back, you think, oh, I would wish I'd done that better, or I should have done that better. And, and because of that failure, actually, that helped you with the success of Joe and then subsequently Jack. Yeah, 100%. It's, it's, it's weird because I, I, I actually sort of do look at them a little bit as failures because if you get deep into, into coaching, it really is a, it's a connection, it's a relationship and it's a listening. And I probably should have done a bit more listening than, uh, than just doing and acting. Um, I think a lot of the enthusiasm that I had as a younger coach might have come across a little bit too intense <laughs> and too um, about me implanting information as opposed to know creating building this relationship this two-way process of learning which you then but you don't learn it till you're older so I don't blame myself um I just it would have been nicer to have slightly wiser a slightly wiser head on the shoulders but I'm I'm doing my best to make up for it now Candy I really am (laughs) did you have a good mentor when you started coaching I had some uh, fantastic fantastic mentors actually I I I grew up in a in a in a city tennis program um which yeah, I was lucky enough to come across a guy called David Sims, who was London, and we, we you know, he's he set up a lot of inner city matches. We played inner city New York, and the New York team, the captains were Arthur Ashe and Vetus Gerolitis. That's not bad. They came over to Brockwell <laughs> Park in Brixton. They brought the inner city London, uh, New York team, and I played for the inner city London team, and, and we lost 11-1. And, and I want to ask you, you know, who who won the one? 
I presume it was you, Justin. And actually, yeah, just it's something I'm still proud of. It's tie break, tie break in the third. So, so even now, when the guys say, "Oh, just you're just an old coach. You don't know much about pressure," I say, "Well, let me tell you a story from 1985." So, do you remember speaking to Arthur Ashe <clears throat> to Scarlettis at that point? I, I was just, I was just in awe because I've always been a, always been a big tennis fan, and to have someone with the grace. And I remember reading, you know, reading thereafter. Um, Arthur Ashe's book, Days of Grace, and I really would recommend it. It's a hell of a read. And funnily enough, my, my father looks very much like Vetus Gerolaitis. <laughs> so that was the funny thing, because whenever we'd, we'd go into restaurants, people would come up to my father and ask him for an autograph. <laughs> so it was actually nice to see a Vetus Gerolaitis in, in person and uh, to actually then go to my dad and say, yeah, I think they're right. You do look a bit like him. <laughs> so you, by that, I suppose, can see the importance of having uh, people as special as they coming in to look at younger kids practice and and what that can do for a young child yeah i mean i've got this you know this this sort of you know the idea of coach education i prefer to call it coach inspiration because that's all i think that's the best mm. the best um sort of characteristic a, a coach educator can have is to inspire the next generation of coaches and or players and that's what i've certainly tried to do i try and do it now at my age at grand slams i just trying to inspire you know someone like Joe Salisbury to be the very, very best that he can be and a lot of the times you know he'll sort of say to me look can you can you say that thing again can you can we have that chat and it worked because I'm also the sort of coach now that asks for feedback and says look d does it help otherwise I'll save my uh, soul searching <laughs> phrases and and, and 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 you know and catch lines t t for myself for another day but I think it's you know important when I was a younger player I was around Alan Jones a lot a very passionate coach I mean Tennis coaching for me has always come from the heart, always come from the heart. We see these warriors go out there, you know, like Rafa and Novak for four or five hours. They come back, you know, from having a match point two hours, two and a half hours ago and they go on to win the match. I mean, you're not doing that with just forehands and backhands. You're doing that because it's deep, deep, deep within your soul. So uh, I try and teach the game from that perspective. Would you say then you're a very collaborative coach? You want feedback from your player rather than you telling them what to do and they doing it? 100%. I mean, the days of the autocratic coach are, are, are well long gone. And that's perhaps, you know, looking back to when I first started coaching, which actually was, was in Lanzarote in 1986 and 87 when I moved over there with my father. And he said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I, I can teach a bit of tennis to all the, to all the expats. So that's why I started to... Uh, to do and it was all about you sort of in, imparting your ego or trying to impart your knowledge of the game onto people that are lesser than you mm. and I think that you can get you can get lost in that for a while because actually it never felt right and it hasn't felt right until that maybe 10 years ago when you start to realize that it's quite a grown-up sport and you know sitting down in the corner for a couple of hours after a match and not even talking about tennis is is far more beneficial than trying to fix someone's forehand and coaching in Lanzarote you learn how to play and work in the wind very windy absolutely you do you do if you're not if you're not hitting tennis balls you win surfing <laughs> so going back to your coaching philosophy um working with joe and jack uh, what have you learned over the time in your coaching career and and how things work best and how to spot and really inspire real talent well i think you can definitely you can definitely trust your gut and i and i and i that's something i do do i might doubt myself in terms of creating a forehand or making the perfect serve. But I'm, I've got to the point where I really, really trust my gut. And if I feel that someone wants to go somewhere and somewhere special, then I say to them, I'm your man. I, I want to go there too. So 
you know, when Joe invited me to, you know, I've, I've been with Joe since he was six years old, but on and off, main coach a little bit, and then, well, main coach for most of the way, and then and then off for the last few years as he's, you know, really absorbed everything that Louis Caillet has had to offer him in terms of, you know, expertise and doubles. Um, and then, you know, me, me being around Louis and picking up all that information and learning it almost parrot fashion. Um, but then learning it to such an extent so that when I regurgitate it to, to Joe, he believes that I know it. He believes that I know it. I really feel that coaching is talking to the heart. You're talking to the heart and you may have to explain to the head from time to time. But if you can really make that sort of spiritual connection with a player, they'll listen to you. That you you know you that, that you you've got to get their ear, mm. and you don't do it necessarily with content. Content is content. Content lasts for five minutes, so you can show off your knowledge all you like. But unless you really are prepared to to get under the un, you know under the under the skin of of, of, of your player and, and find out what makes them tick, then I, th I think it's a tough task. But for you know twenty odd years with with Joe now and, and still hanging around and Jack and, and and chatting to him a little bit, it's I'm privileged. When you're speaking to someone like Louis Cayer, how long does it take for all his information to sort of get baked into your own brain? I'm still waiting. I'm still waiting <laughs> for all that information to trickle down and I'll wake up in the middle of the night and I'll suddenly go, I get it. Or I'll be having a hot shower, just relaxing in my sort of subconscious mood and I'll go, oh my gosh, that's another bit I've just got. I mean, you know, the, the guy's sort of 20 years older than me. He's got all that knowledge and I just have to just wait and don't put too much pressure on myself. But I need to be clear, if Louis's not here and... And, and the guys need you know work on their first volley or positioning or tactical information I need to know that I can't sort of turn around and say I'm sorry Lou's not here mm. we don't know what we're talking about I need to have learned that so it's a bit like a degree course it's a bit like adult learning what happens if you're not 100% sure would you sort of try something and then see it's not working and pull back or would you keep on going knowing that you you believe that's the right thing to do no I'm actually a big believer in if you don't know something keep your mouth shut keep your mouth shut because normally the player will know it's not like Joe doesn't know what he's doing or Rajiv doesn't know you, you invite you're quite clever with your questions and just by saying and as long as you're clear on the things you do know you can't say it every time I don't know what do you think I don't know what do you think but you might say what have you done when it's worked well for you and that's a clever question in coaching because you're just inviting them to, to revisit something that they know they can do mm. and actually you're giving them the opportunity to reinvest in their own self-confidence as opposed to you always being there to tell them that that's no good either but um, there are times when the coach and when the player just needs to know the answer quickly what do I need to do and if I just stand there every time and say whoa what do you think they're going to go just I just need to know mate I've got 20 minutes left to practice just get mm. onto it with you and I say well yeah yeah you need to push through two steps from contact on the volley that's it mate and get on with it so if you don't know yeah but if you don't know just sort of say you know just sort of say the nice thing is we work in a team you've got Dave O'Hare Louis Cayenne myself and I say do you mind if we let's have a look at that later on Okay. Let's look at it later, but don't bluff, don't give them nonsense, because they'll just look at you and say, "Just that's that's nonsense." Because they know you well enough to know you're bluffing. Hundred percent, and you just yeah, you wouldn't do it. You you you're always invested in giving them invest in giving them your best. Mm. So that isn't my best. That's a bluff, and 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 there's no point kicking myself. I don't know the answer. I'll go away and study it, or I'll go. Do you mind? Let's, let's look at that. Look at that on the tape later on, or or um yeah, or Dave, what do you guys think? Or yeah, what have you done when you've done it well? Remind yourself. And I suppose with every player, there's a different way of communicating. 100%. I mean, a lot of the times, you know, it, 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 as long as you get to the point where you realize that it's your player that needs the confidence, not you. You can go work on your confidence at another time, out of their eyesight, out of, the, you know, this is their limelight, this is their time. 
So the more you can make them feel good, I'll even say to Joe sometimes if I lose to him at a game or something, I say, hey, I'm here to make you feel good, buddy. You're the star. They'll look at me like, shut, <laughs> shut up. I'd have beaten you anyway in that game or something. So, but but if you if you if you start off from that viewpoint, you can't really go wrong because the player kind of needs you to be in like a it's it's odd even with adults, um like a parental sort of role, and you're just trying to always be aware of their self 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 confidence. What are they going to do on big points when you've got thousands of people in the arena and you're fully aware that there are millions watching around the world? I mean, if you've if you've invested in yourself as a coach and you're confident, and, but don't worry about the player, you, you fail. It has to be the player needs to look at you and say, "I got this, and I've got this because of the environment that I've been in." Mm. Yeah, I've got this because you've grown me, you've helped me to grow, and that confidence. On the big points, does it come down to fundamentals? Does it come down to belief? Does it come down to heart? What would you say? Because in doubles, as we know especially at the top level that Joe and Rajiv Ram are playing at, it really comes down, doesn't it, to one or two points here and there? It does. And what I've noticed more recently is that it comes down to, actually comes down to clarity, which might sound, might sound a little unusual because you need to have faith. Of course, you need to have faith in yourself. Of course, you need to have control over your fundamentals. But actually, what helps you get there is crystal clear clarity. I don't see it as any different from an archer They've got one mm. shot left to win a gold medal. And they know they can do it. So if you're thinking about technique, if you're thinking about your skill set, you are in the wrong place. You're in the wrong place. You're too, you're too cognitive. It needs to be automatic. So that all you then need is absolute crystal clear clarity. And the nice thing about doubles is you work in pairs and you work on patterns. So as long as Joe hits his spot, Rajiv knows where he's going to go. And if they hit a great return... Joe can cover it. And in that moment of process, we just need crystal clear clarity. And that's something that we talk about a lot. How do you get to crystal clear clarity? You, you train it. And the, the, you know, the mind and concentration and focus is something that you can train. So before every single session, um, I will ask Joe what he wants out of this session and what he's going to go after. And there's a difference between wanting something, thinking about something, being aware of something and going after something. Going after something is going after that bullseye. We're not just looking to hit the board here. We're not looking for threes or fours. We want absolute clarity. So, you know, even at 30 years old, multiple Grand Slam champion, number one in the world, if he gives me a fluffy answer like, yeah, I just, you know, I want to be great on that return, I'll say, what, what return? Talk me through the process in chronological order. We've been doing that a lot recently. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to get ready. I'm going to really lock in my eyes, tune into that ball at you know in the server's hand and then I'm going to really really read the ball hunt the ball down follow it all the way in to my strike zone and then I'm going to turn on contact and exhale and make sure I let go and release my, my shoulders through contact so if that isn't giving you absolute crystal clear clarity I don't know what is but that's what we want to be practiced so in every practice mm. session we'll do that so in the big moments the guys aren't going somewhere where they haven't been before they know that's what it takes and, and they also know they can do it and they also know they practiced it you can't get confidence without practicing so there was a lot of steps there about uh, contact, follow through, etc. But on a big point, you wouldn't want to think about all that, would you? You just want to be automatic. 100%, 100%. But you need to know that you know the process. Mm. So that when you pick your claret, when you pick your play and it's clear in your mind, you know you've practiced it enough times that it's there for you. And that process is sort of just sitting in the background 
of your mind. The process is in the background, but the tactical clarity is in the foreground. So you hit that spot. You hit that spot like, you know, like the shooter aiming for that last clay pigeon to win the Olympics. It's literally, they're not worrying about squeezing the trigger. They've done all that in practice. They're literally focusing on it. And we use this phrase a lot, this laser beam focus. There's all sorts of focus that you can have, but is it laser beam? And when you, when you get under the skin of focus, you do realize that are you focusing on, you know, if you look at something on your ceiling right now, you're looking at the ceiling as a whole, or are you looking at the light, or are you looking at which aspect are you looking at? Have you found that little bit of paint that you wish you'd always scraped off like 20 years ago when you painted the ceiling or what have you? It's the level of focus, and if you practice it enough, you, you get to grips, and I know the difference between Joe hitting his spot, if Joe catches a little bit of that center line, it's, you know, they're, they're 95% gonna win the point. If he brings it in a couple of centimeters, they're 90%. If he brings it in like three or four centimeters, they're now 85%, 80%. And we take it even further. If you miss your spot by like 50 centimeters, the chances are that you're going to lose the point because mm. you've got a great forehand return to deal with. So these are the margins. So get to grips with the margins, get to grips with the detail and coach it. And you see that, don't you, with the men's top players, with Rafa, with Novak and with Roger when he was playing, how focused they are. They don't let anything kind of caps their, their imagination. They've got one idea, particularly on the big points. Yeah, definitely. I mean, watching, watching Rafi, you know, we all you know, know that he, he has his pre-return you know, pre routine and his pre-serve routine. I know we can all sort of imagine it right now, but that's pretty much the detail that he's bothered to go to and his body's taking it on to put him in a certain zone. Um, he's almost in a trance, isn't he? And, and certainly I can see Joe when he's, when he's, when he's playing his best tennis he's in that zone, mm. in that really, really effortless zone of relaxation and pure focus. With the relaxation, is that work that Joe is doing off the court? Is he working with someone in that regard or is that just coming on the court with the he practice? He certainly does a lot of decluttering. I think it's easy for him to, with all the stuff that's going on in his world, and I'm you know, amazed at he, you know, all the physical work that he has to do and the rehab that he has to do to, to make sure that his back's in a good place and all the precision stuff and and all the, you know, the, talking to agents and talking to sponsors and talking to people that want some of his time. And, you know, if he's not on the court, he's off the court doing all that work and talking to his physio, talking to his S&C, talking to us. Um, he has to declutter, so he does talk to, he does have, you know, there is a, you know, psych on the team who we all work with really, really well. Uh, Matt does an amazing job. And sometimes Joe will just, yeah, unravel, unravel his mind to him and just let it all out so that he can then, if you like, empty his cup so he can mm. fill it, refill it again with things. It's no different from us doing like a bit of spring cleaning. You know, go around there and say, we don't need that, we don't need that, let's get rid of that. And then let's, let's sort of reevaluate where we are and just, just clean, the, you know, clean, the, clean everything and, and, and get back to where we need to be. Um, is that important to decompress almost for these guys to go back to the hotel rooms and just switch their minds off completely so that they can really turn it on when they need to? I think it is, yeah, and especially, and I think, you know, Joe, Joe's, Joe's actually a bit happier when he's got a bit of company. Um, he does like that sort of time when he's hanging out and just chilling and we've got music on, we've got barbecue on, and, you know, we play a little game, no matter what happens, we, we get into the car and, and, we, and we travel back and then there's a topic. So it could be, um, it could be cities and we have to think of songs 
they've got us. So we've been playing that game every single time, and and I'm the one that sort of comes up with the items and uh, the heading. So I think it was colours, and then it was fruit and vegetables. So any song, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, the listeners now thinking of all those things. And uh, so you know, write in, do you know, you know, let us know, let us know good items for the next Grand Slam because it, it does it does make the journey really fun. And then Danny, Danny, our physio, will actually sing the songs. Because she knows she 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 fancies herself as a bit of a singer. And she's got a pretty voice, so uh, yeah, she'll sing it, and it keeps the drivers occupied as well. They they enjoy our trips, I think. And having fun is so much a part of it because it really is a serious business. But you've got to enjoy it with all the downtime and really uh, look forward to the next tournament rather than thinking, oh, it's a bit of a grind. Hundred percent. I mean, I know that um, we went to India to start the year off, um, so we spent uh, you know sort of ten days in India. Um, because Joe had never been there before and it's a wonderful culture, lovely food and we'd really enjoyed having our uh, our doses in the morning, you know, Indian savoury sort of breakfast in the morning. So yeah, it's, it's, it's all part of the journey. Goodness me, if you're not going to enjoy it, then what is the point? Attitude-wise, do you see a big difference between Joe Salisbury playing doubles and Jack Draper playing singles? Yeah, it's a good uh, it's, a, it's a good question. I think I, I do I do desperately think that the singles game is just you know mercilessly physical. It really is physical in a, in a different way. I mean, Joe's so explosive, so dynamic. Probably the most you know one of the most dynamic doubles players perhaps of all time, and athletic. And I remember when Andy was coming back from his injury and he was starting to play doubles. I remember when he was practicing with us, he said, boy, this game is this game is pretty explosive. It's very anaerobic and it's very explosive, whereas tennis can often be, you know, you get that explosiveness, but then you get that, you get the long rallies and you can often get a sequence, can't you, of sort of 20 minutes of where every rally seems to be going on and on and on forever. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a big lung buster. I'm yet to see Joe come off the court and say, wow, I'm, I'm really out of puff here. Um, definitely come, ac- you know, come off and get in the ice bath and, and, and get get those get some blood fresh, fresh blood back in those legs and and the lower back and and sort that arm out for serving, um, but but yeah, it's, they're, they're almost at times it feels like they're different games. If you get a, a really good a really good doubles pair, they can out pattern, mm. out think, and out routine a good a good singles uh, a good singles pair. But then of course they're used to just smashing the ball from the back of the court. So it kind of depends which surface, what altitude, which balls are using. And what about attitude-wise? Do you see the differences or similarities between the doubles and the singles guys? Cause I'd imagine the singles guys have to be a lot more selfish. Well, I think so, yeah. And it's funny because Rajiv, Rajiv was mentioning it the other day about just, you know, when he's missed a couple of balls, he actually feels pretty bad that he's letting, that he's letting Joe down. And, uh, Even I at think, that level. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, this, if you're a conscientious person, you take it, you take it into every arena. You know, I would think and uh, um, I think, uh, you know, at the very least, you know, as a singles player, you know that, hey, you're letting yourself down and there's no one else to there's no one else to go and console later on or apologize to. But we have such a great team ethos of honesty Mm. and transparency. There's there's some people would come into our team meetings and say, wow, that was brutal. That was brutal. I mean, how can you pick someone apart like that? But it's by design. And it's um, we have license to do that. We can actually call out the guys and say, "What was that serve at? You know, fifteen forty. What, what are you rolling that serving for? What are you doing that? You just you just made Raj a sitting duck, or you know, Rajiv will just call out and say, "Don't you think you, you know, don't think that you should have made a few more returns, or you got to get we got to make more balls, guys. You know, we and and that's part of what I think makes us very very strong, is that we don't take anything personally. The guys don't take anything personally. It's all it's all sort of said 
from a position of helping each other. So after a doubles loss, because I presume that would be mostly when you'd have a heart to heart, the guys are very upfront and blunt almost in their analysis of what just happened. They either blame themselves or they, Rajiv would say to Joe or vice versa, you know, what were you doing there? And yeah, then they can get I mean, over I'm, it and start again the next day. I'm thinking, you know, the 0-2, 8-3 up in the match tiebreak against Meltzer and Vassalan um, a couple of years ago now. And I mean, I was, I was, I was dancing, ready to, ready to make my way into the final and for Joe and Rajiv to finish year-end number one. And we're just sort of sitting there and watching the guys sort of unravel. I mean, in those moments, it's brutal. And there's no one talking to anybody for the next probably hour and a half it's just too painful mm. um and everyone feels that but then you very quickly professionally which i'm grateful for is that everybody gets to the point where okay life goes on we need to take something from this so then we will start unraveling and that and when you get a big loss like that it may actually come out in the course of the next week or two weeks because maybe things are just too raw but they do come out in the end and then they are used as opportunities to learn and grow and reflect upon in the future so and then what's quite nice is after a match like that where you know people come up to me saying oh my god how did you guys lose from 8-3 and then you know now they're sort of coming saying how did you guys respond you're amazing how did you bounce back you won two US Opens you know you won the Turin without without losing a match and you say well that just shows how strong we are and so you know that in those moments of defeat the best thing you can do is just to take your time wait till everyone's happy and then unpick it like a savage. Mm. Go after it like you never want it to happen again. You know, it's 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 just like that. And that and that's how that's why we operate. I think tennis players in general are so strong later in life because they're so used to being knocked down constantly and suffering horrible defeats, where you feel that hollow feeling. You just feel so miserable, like the earth would swallow you up. But you have to come out the next day, don't you? You have to come stronger and better and try and learn from those those mistakes. And if you can do that in life. That is uh, such an incredible thing. Yeah, I mean, how often do you, you know, might you get in, uh, you know, you, you head into the sort of mortgage office and you're going for a mortgage and you think you've got everything lined up and the guy says no and <laughs> and then and then you've got to go into press and talk about how you didn't get your mortgage. <laughs> so I think, I think tennis players have got it a lot harder. You know, they've got to pretty much go into press from a state of, you know, not not depression as such, but there is a deep depression in in a room. I mean... Wimbledon this year, you know, there's no one around. Semi-finals of Wimby, we've had five match points. I mean, it's brutal. I mean, all I did was, I went into the changing room afterwards and all I do out of complete instinct is go up to Joe and he's sitting there with his head bowed and I just lean over him and probably, and I hugged him for like 30 seconds. And I hugged him from a position of, I feel you, man, I really feel you. I really, really feel you. That's, that's all you can do. Just go and give him a hug. And, that, and that's it. And... uh yeah, and I, th and I think actually, I think, you know, the response I got back at the time was like, yeah, you know, no, no words spoken, but yeah, thanks. It's kind of, I needed that, you know? I and that's, that. uh, I think, the fact that you've been working with Joe for so long is that you know actually how to respond at certain times. That's a really important issue, I'd imagine, with a coach and a player. Yeah, because you're, you're hurting as well as a coach, but you, the, there's a sense that these guys are a bit like your... Um, you know, a bit like your children in, in the fact that you feel you feel their pain. And when you're day in, day out, and you, um, and you see what they go through to get onto the court and it hasn't gone their way, then, yeah, then it's, it's, it's brutally painful. But I'm really, really 
grateful for the highs and lows that it's that it gives you as a coach because it actually shows that you're alive mm. and kicking you know this is a privilege isn't it privilege to experience these emotions and to learn how to deal with them and to and to be at this wonderful wonderful high-end atp wta tour i never ever take it for granted and you know these are sort of emotional moments that help me go back to my own academy and be a better coach mm. and, and for me to then reinvigorate the next generation of players coming through you know i've got a great group of players right now that are playing tennis europe's under 12 under 14 and playing itfs and you know when i go back they sort of look at me and go well what and did you learn what did you learn come on you haven't coached me for a month now what have you <laughs> learned i say don't worry i've got some magic for you you know <laughs> Let's get on with it. I love that. I think that's a brilliant way to end. <laughs> Justin Shering, coach of Joe Salisbury and formerly Jack Draper and still very much involved in uh, Draper's career and what a career it's going to be. Thank you so much. Thank you, Candy.